Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It's Monday morning, so that's right, we have a new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and today's episode will be hosted by Dan Gorman, who you will certainly recognize. And he is talking with Lee Eric Schmidt about his recent book, The Church of St. Thomas Paine, A Religious History of American Secularism, which was published by Princeton in 2021. Dr. Schmidt is a newcomer to the RSP, but I'm sure that our listeners will be familiar with him and his work as well. He is the Edward C. Mallinckrodt Distinguished University Professor in the Humanities at Washington University in St. Louis, where he is also part of their John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics. And in today's episode, they'll be discussing the use of Thomas Paine as a symbol of atheism and whether religion can function or operate without a belief in God. So I will let Dan take it from here. This is The Church of St. Thomas Paine, Religion Without God, with Lee Eric Schmidt by Dan Gorman. Take it away. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. This is Dan Gorman from uh, snowy Rochester calling Lee Eric Schmidt in, uh, well, I don't know if it's snowy, but St. Louis. It's chilly, that's for sure. Not as snowy. So today we're going to be talking about your recent book, The Church of St. Thomas Paine, which I know came out about a year and a half ago, but in COVID time, that feels like last week. Right, right. Yeah. No, it's been, I guess, uh, right, a little over a year. So the, my first question was, with this book coming out in 21, and you mentioned the pandemic briefly in the beginning, how did the pandemic affect the research process of researching the religious history of Thomas Paine? I was fortunate that I had done a lot of the archival work, you know, by the time the pandemic hit. So, you know, I'd already been to the Thomas Paine Institute, that archive in New Rochelle. I had, you know, been to the New Yorkist Historical Society. I'd been many of the places that the the way the pandemic slowed it down was it was really hard to follow up. Mm-hmm. You know, you couldn't get back in. You know, if you right. if there was a trail you wanted to follow up on, it was really hard. I mean, you couldn't. A lot of times, people weren't even in their collections, so you couldn't get stuff. Eventually, then people were getting back into their collections, and they could send you copies if your if your search was specific enough. But you know, it's it slowed down that final stage of it. There were just things you couldn't you couldn't follow up on. You couldn't get to. You know, sometimes getting the photographs because that's a final stage thing, mm-hmm. you know, where you're really working on images and uh, all of that was made more complicated. But I had done the lion's share of the archival work already. So I I was in, you know, full writing mode by the time the pandemic hit. And, uh, you know, and then, the, of course, if you're in full writing mode, I, I was on leave that year. Um, but things were going pretty well on the writing standpoint. And then, um, uh, you know, my kids were, uh, everybody, I two away in college, they ended up back at home. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my youngest who's uh, in high school, you know, ended up, wasn't high school yet then, but he, uh, you know, ended up out of school and just at home. Right. So suddenly, you know, you, it's really hard to work. Yeah, you know, so you're just so for a while I I was able to do it. I I was able to, you know, get up really early and keep writing and then eventually that became difficult. So, I was just I was thinking I was in the same boat from I'd say from about March to August 2020 I didn't get any writing research done. 
Um, yeah, I know. It just shut things down. And then it became really, yeah, just really hard on, on some of this stuff, just following back up. I mean, there's a huge um, archive for the American Humanist Association and in Carbondale, Illinois, which happens to be really convenient for me. I mean, it's only a couple hours away, but boy, I mean, I never got, never really got back to some of that material. Just, it was just closed off. So I I don't know how much longer. I just felt like, you know, you weren't going to get it, period. So well, that's, that's, that ties into actually one question I had sort of about the uh, structure of the book. I don't know why I'm holding this up because this is an audio interview, but um, <laughs> um but I have the I have the book here for our listeners, and it, it's sort of a small book in sort of the way it's formatted. And something about the font and the structure of it makes me think it it almost evokes a prayer book the way it was structured. I wonder were you were you involved in the design of the book? Were you going for that intentionally? I I was not involved in the design of the book. Yeah, I've learned over the years that presses really don't want your input on certain things like jacket design or you know fonts or but i but I, the, the cover designed by whom kyle Spursum, whoever that is it caught my attention at the organization of american historians last year because it's thomas Paine with an orthodox disc behind his head yeah yeah no i think i think the design is is good so i was happy with it but i i have to say that even if i weren't happy with it i've learned that it wouldn't have been a profitable path to <laughs> go down like, think, i do not like that please redesign in the cover right so um but no, I didn't have any, you know, sense of that. I mean, I did think from the design that is it, you know, the it is, it's a slightly smaller pages and the, the font's a little bigger, which I, I suppose they're trying to make it, you know, more readable that way. But what it did, called attention to me was the length of my paragraphs sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that I'm good about breaking the prose up in the right kind of way, but when, with that design, it became more evident. Oh yeah, that's that, what <laughs> that my some of my paragraphs were longer. They weren't exactly those clipped journalistic paragraphs. Yeah, I just for example, pages ninety six to ninety seven. It starts a little and then it continues down the next page. I have the same problem in my own writing, so I sympathize. Right, right. So you want a different design that doesn't call attention to that. Yeah. Well, at least you don't have the footnotes on the bottom of the pages like my right. dissertation does. So. Right, um, right, right. Yeah, that's another uh, design. Design issue you don't want to really bring up if you if you can avoid it. Presses have very strong opinions about endnotes yeah. and footnotes. But anyway, pivoting to the book itself, the book is called "The Church of Saint Thomas Paine: A Religious History of American Secularism." And what I found really interesting reading the book is that Paine obviously is a significant figure in it as this founding father, yes. agnostic, free thinker. But we don't learn as much about actually about Thomas Paine's religious beliefs. The book is more about Paine as a symbol to other people. One of the reasons I asked about the pandemic and how that affected your research, I was curious, did you plan to have more content about Thomas Paine, the man, and did you pivot at all in the structure of the book? No, I, I, um, yeah, I, you know, that was actually an issue. I mean, I, I think this was something with my editor. I mean, he really liked foregrounding Thomas Paine, mm -hmm. um, you know, because there's a lot of interest in founding father figures and, and, and things like that. I all along was more interested in, you know, pain as a as a symbol or on this totem for these 19th century free thinkers. So it's it's what people were making of pain and how pain became, you know, so important to various projects. And then how he's how he is, you know, sacralized, canonized, but how 
awkwardly so often. So I was interested in like even his his most devoted followers, like the um, post Unitarian free thinker Moncure Conway, you know, knows better even as he's pursuing all of these relics and talking about pain in these canonized ways and imagining that if he gets hold of these relics, the relics have some sort of talismanic power. He knows better, but he somehow can't resist those religious gestures, right? He embraces them, he plays with them. So I I was always more interested in what these liberal, free-thinking, secularist, agnostic people were doing with pain than with with pain himself it wasn't going to be a book that was trying to figure out um you know what pain's religion actually was it was much more you know what later figures picked up from pain and made central to their own religious world Hearing you talk about that reminds me of a conversation I had with Douglas Brooks, who is a scholar of Hinduism at the University of Rochester. Um, I think he was actually the first person I interviewed for the Religious Studies Project, but I don't think this conversation made the final recording. So Brooks is someone who has studied tantric Hinduism, which is sometimes controversial. People will use it in different ways in conversation. And he said, you can contrast you know, different sects following of tantric philosophy. You know, you can get really into it and learn all the textual differences but you can also look at, you know, kind of the, the public uses of it, you know, when it's held up as a symbol. And sometimes, and it sounds like that you were kind of navigating that and working on this book. The There is the textual, the digging into what did the founding father think, but then there's the founding father as a symbol. Right, right. Yeah, there was, you know, there was much more in that uh, on the latter. I mean, there, there, you know, I, you know, sure, there's certain key texts, you know, from pain that are being picked up. So there, there, you know, there's there's a relationship between what pain was espousing and you know what people are emphasizing later but you know what what became interesting to me was you know how they they really got focused on say one little line from the rights of man and turned it into a motto you know yes the, and, and for reference uh, the line is the world is my country all mankind are my brethren and to do good is my religion Right. So it's it's that, you know, all the world, right, you know, is my country and do good is my religion. That becomes this, they rework that slightly from the rights of man, and that becomes this motto. And it's, you know, it's everywhere, right? And so it's their kind of... It's a 19th century meme. Yeah, right, right. I mean, the, it's a little overly They simplistic. put it on banners, they, they, they put it on his portrait. They I was thinking it to make a good bumper sticker. They could put it, they would, yeah, they could have had on bumper stickers. They put it on, you know, gravestones. And and they also, they kind of repeat it as if it summarizes their religion. This is, you know, my religion is this. I mean, I'm not an evangelical. I'm not, you know, uh, you know, Christian anymore. The best religion of all was summed up by pain in this motto. So, you know, I got, I got more interested in like the thing, the things they were doing with Payne's memory and what they were memorializing and how they were, you know, how they're ritualizing these birthday celebrations, the January 29th celebrations, what they were saying about Payne from year to year. And then just also their kind of their interest in his material remains that they really did have a sense of relics that they were pursuing. Because the, the, the big the big thing is, is that Payne dies in 1809. He's buried in New Rochelle. Ten years later, um, William Cobbett and an associate 
who about that point have become pain sympathizers, but think the Americans have done a horrible job of memorializing pain. They rob his grave, steal his remains, and take them back to England. At that point, you know, you have this empty tomb in New Rochelle, and you have these vagrant relics that pretty soon go missing in England, and it becomes this odyssey for a number of American freethinkers and secularists to try to reclaim them and bring them back to the United States, which they have a little bit of success with. But, you know, it's it's really interesting to see how how important getting those remains back, how that, how, how, how concerned they are with that, that, that sense that they will repatriate these bones. So I got, I got really, you know, interested in the, in the, in those kinds of dimensions of pain and what these painites were doing. And there's something interesting about Cobbett in particular, and these sort of, I don't know, these lines where he's talking about digging, where you quote him, his diary entry talking about digging up pain and he almost reads a bit like a comic book villain. He's all mine. <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. right. No, it, yes, right. Exactly. I mean, there, yeah, I mean, he is extremely excited about the prospects of, um, you know, of taking these remains back to England and that somehow they will catalyze reform and labor radicalism in England. And of course they don't. Everyone is just, the, the press is, you know, just rained down contempt upon Cobbett, you know, for his plans to kind of bring back the remains of this blaspheming, you know, infidel. So, so it doesn't work out as he plans. Then he loses interest in the project, and then that just leaves these these relics kind of in a state of I don't know, just disarray where nobody knows quite who has what. But just that that sort of anxiety about them missing kind of stokes stokes even more. You know, like oh, we're going to find them. We are going to get them back. We know who had them last. You know, and there's just this endless intrigue and stories that are told about you know what's happened to the bones and and. Um, so anyway, it's uh, yeah, it's quite a free thinking saga. It's an unpredictable one because, of course, free thinkers, secularists, rationalists, whatever you want to call them, are particularly committed to lampooning things like relics. I mean, Protestants were too, but the seculars take it, you know, in an across the board way. They they think Protestants have relics. They think they have the Bible, or they think they, um you know, have, you know, too much devotion to various um, sacred things. So they're just kind of out there to to dematerialize all of this, um, all of this, um, and desanctify it. And so it's, it's fascinating to watch them, you know, come back uh, around to this um, inadvertent devotion to sacred things. One thing I was thinking about reading the book was a, a sort of a functionalist approach to religion of how it operates in the world. And as you said, this desire for relics, the book goes on to talk about the desire for rituals, for secular rituals, and then also for secular institutions. And I'm curious, because, you, because you're writing a history here, not as much of a theoretical book, you don't exactly define religion explicitly. But as a scholar, how do you... How would you approach it? Do you take sort of a functional definition of religion or how do you frame it? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about definitional problems in this context is that you see how concerned these seculars or free thinkers were with the definition of religion, right? They, those who want to think that they can, there's still some room for religion after the loss of religion you know, after they've deserted Christianity, 
they need to redefine religion in such a way that it's compatible with their liberal secularist views. So they do tend to take a, a more functionalist view of religion, or they take a, you know a view, a kind of almost you know Durkheimian view that religion is important for social solidarity, and that so we liberals, we secularists, we need a religion just as much as the Christians, you know, do, or we need these rituals because they serve these important functions. And so what they're doing is they're saying religion really doesn't, you know. Christians keep telling us religion is about an individual's relationship to God. If, if you define religion without this primary sense that it's about a belief in God and about one's relationship with God, if you take that away, it's no longer religion. And it's saying, no, no, religion doesn't have to be theistic. A definition of religion doesn't have to depend on God and spirits mm -hmm. or something. It can, it can be social, ethical, functional. It, it really... Um, so they're working toward this kind of non-theistic definition of religion. So that's what's interesting to me in this is you can kind of you can see them. It really does matter. Like, does this word religion apply in a secular humanistic context? And how can we make it apply? Um, now, there's many of these people who think we don't want the word to religion to apply to us. We just want to get rid of the word religion. We think religion's all bad. There is no such thing as some like clarified rational version of religion that we could accept so we just need to purge religion on all of its allied terms from our lives and from any definition of secularism or humanism I and mean, that's just what we do but for others they think no religion is actually a good word there's still a lot of magic in it or charm in it or significance in it and so how can we define it in such a way that we can claim it that our christian critics who say that there's no religion in this are wrong. So how do we define it, right? So then they go about that. They're kind of creating these non-theistic views of it. So, you know, based on kind of ethics, kind of social ethics usually are based on a sense of group solidarity or things like that. Those are kind of ways they do it. Yeah, so I think the definitional question is really a play. But, you know, I'm looking at it to see how important that work is for people involved in the story themselves. They want to create a definition yeah. that will it's work. And then revealing that the absence of theism is not the same as an absence of religion. Right. That's, I mean, that's a claim that matters to them kind of, you know, existentially, I think. It also matters to them in turn, legally, right? That this is a way to gain some sort of civic recognition, right? Religion, religion has value, you know, in this, in a, in a kind of sense that there are rights accorded to it, liberties accorded to it. And so one of the places it comes to a head eventually in uh, the 1950s is over tax exemption hmm. where there there are not, there are a couple of cases where municipalities counties states decide that these humanist churches or ethical societies um aren't religious organizations so they don't deserve tax exemption so they are at some pains to claim you know to show well no actually we are religion we've always said we're a religion you know, um, and, you know, we deserve tax exemption. And in those cases, they win. There's one in Oakland and one in Washington, D.C., and they win their cases. So there is a so to get a, a to get a non-theistic definition of religion accepted pays off in legal terms, too. Then it pays off with conscientious objection. That's another place it pays off where you can get humanist conscientious objector recognized because they're. Is a certain kind of religious quality to their conscience that the courts are recognize. 
well, keeping with this definitional question, and again, of an atheistic religion, you mentioned in the book Francis Ellingwood Abbott, who is a free thinker himself in the 19th century, but he also writes some early, compare. I guess you'd call it comparative religious texts. And you mentioned that he's one of the first Americans that we know of to try to define religion as not just being about theology or about believing in God. But I'm guessing this was a very much a minority view at the time, um, particularly among Orthodox Christians, small o Orthodox. Um, right. And I, I was curious if you see atheists besides Abbott trying to, so 19th century atheists or agnostics trying to engage with this, like trying to popularly expand the the concept of what a religion can be. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're yeah, no, there's there's a sizable group of them who are doing that. I mean, you it's they're debating amongst themselves whether that's a good idea or not. And we see that debate still, you know, in the in the late 20th century when religious critics start to claim that humanism is a religion, that secular humanism is a religion. And that, you know, for some humanists, they decide, no, this this there's just too much costs associated with being described in religious terms. So um, we're not a religion at all. You know, we're, this is a, you know, a wholly secular worldview that has nothing to do with religion. So there's, you know, so, so that there is, there's that group. I mean, I would see them as kind of purists of those who just see religion as contaminating and they don't want to do so that there's that group in the 19th century. Abbott has has plenty of fellow freethinkers around him who don't think it's an interesting question or important question or the right question to trying to figure out if you can have a non-theistic religion or that atheistic religion should count as religion, as he said, you know. And, and he tends to, you know, pull in, you know, Buddhism as an example, which, you know, other interpreters did. And it's problematic the, the, the way that is done. But, you know, mainly what he's really trying to do you say that liberal free thinking people like himself and his sundry allies actually, you know, um, should be counted as religious. It's, you know, and he, he, he still thinks that's important. And it would be, you know, it's interesting to figure out like, what, you know, why is it important to some of these people still, right? Um, you know, a lot of them are ex-Unitarian ministers who grew up in the church, still see some, you know, even as they're becoming, you know, more and more secularist in their orientation, they still have a sense that religious organizations, religious institutions matter, and that they so that they really do want some form of a secular religion, as they would say, and they will want some sort of space for, to have, as they said, churches for the unchurched, hmm. you know, so that they, they, they still want that. They, they still feel connected enough that they still see the value enough and churches and congregations that they want to be able to think of their secularism in religious terms. So, you know, Abbott's in that group, but he's got plenty of people around him, you know, just, you know, right, who don't think that, right? Just as we would, you know, there would be plenty of atheists in the 21st century who are like, why would we want a religion for atheism? Yeah, right? I mean, like, why would you want that? And then yeah. you have, you know, others who think, no, I mean, there are these 
kind of religious dimensions of this. Maybe it's mindfulness practices. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's just the importance of congregational life. Maybe the arts have some sort of sacred significance. I mean, there are all of those kinds of things that other atheists would, you know, want to play around with religiously, but there are plenty of them who are like, you know, no, this is a line we don't want to cross. I was thinking, I was thinking too of last year, well, last academic year, I taught a class on religion and science, and we did a unit on atheism because I said this is this is part of the story. And contrasting Christopher Hitchens, who is the no religious signs, no symbols, no rituals. But if you put him in conversation with someone like Anthony Pinn, who is an atheist, but talks, who writes very eloquently about the the utilities of black theology, black community, even if even if him, he himself as a black man is not a believer in God. Um, I think it shows that this is still a lively topic of conversation among atheists and agnostics. Right, right. No, it, it definitely is. Um, and I mean, there is that. I think of Anthony Penn is, you know, in that kind of humanist world. And um, the labels are all mushy. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're a crossover one another and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I think that there is a kind of humanistic group where those kinds of um, negotiations are, you know, part of it. I mean, that, you know, you know, you just have, um, you just have a lot of humanistic Unitarians or atheistic Unitarians, but, you know, still, and, and um, so they, they don't, they, they, they like this, these kinds of engagements. And then the Hitchens of the world are, you know, it's it's all a disease. It's all, yes. all you know. So although if you take the functional approach to religion, I could argue that he is an evangelical atheist. Yeah, right, Plus. right. No, there yes, exactly. No, there's there's uh yes, no, you could in many ways the the when you see the the fights, the debates when these things line up, it's like the um you know uh, more conservative evangelicals love to get in debates with atheists because there is a kind of just such a clear collision of mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of worldviews at that point. So those staging those debates in the 1920s, there were a number of these kinds of debates. This group, American Association for the Advancement of Atheism, had a handful of debaters, and they would go out and debate, um, you know, fundamentalist preachers, and this was quite a good show. You know, so, so so I guess Ken Ham and Bill Nye weren't the ones to invent this. Yeah, right, right. I did skim some of the reviews that were out there of the book. There was an interesting one by a writer named Paul Seaton for Law and Liberty, which, as you may guess from the name, is a more conservative magazine. I don't. I, I'm going to overly simplify his argument, but one one thing he talks about is that it, it appears that Mr. Seaton thinks the founders wanted, and that there still should be a place for religion in public life. Seton says that your book comes down more on the side of, you know, the government should be divorced from religion. And of course, from his perspective, he thinks the book is problematic. Reading the book myself, it did seem like in some way your heart is with people in who in the lat in the epilogue who are trying to create a secular culture in the sense that it doesn't overly privilege one religion or not. And I was kind of curious if you'd first if you'd heard of this review. Um, if you've heard of similar critiques from people who see that think that there should be more of a, a role for religion in public life, and how would you respond to that? Right, right. Now there, you know, there, there are definitely um, you know critics out there. I mean, in terms, you know, I, I am by the end of it rather critical of this notion. The way it's deployed, it has been deployed in right wing 
evangelical circles, notions of the religion of secularism. That, that you know, somehow the state has has consistently since the 19, you know, late 1940s into the 60s and beyond, um, you know, basically pushed religion by religion, they mean Christianity, you know, out of the public sphere and, you know, out of a pretense of establishing neutrality have actually proven themselves quite hostile, right, um, to Christianity. And they have this kind of sense that there is this this, this incredibly powerful religion of secularism that basically becomes the established religion, right? I, I um, you know, what my critique at the end is this getting inside, well, who do you have in mind here, right? I mean, you know, really, I mean, who are, who are these, you know, dangerous humanists? Who are these people who, you know, right? Like how much power are they really wielding? And I just go through, you know, I just go through some of the examples. Like I, I do a lot with this, this Oakland um, Church of Humanity or Fellowship of Humanity, um, led by this ex-Methodist minister, A.D. Fopel, who, you know, a religious humanist, uh, you know, starts this little congregation, probably has 150 people in it, you know, when it's kind of at its peak, right? Um and they're one of this is the congregation that gets involved in um, the tax exemption issues eventually, and they they win, they're vindicated in the courts. But that's kind of minority rights. Like, hey, you know, I know we're we're small and don't look like a religion to you in some kind of way, but we actually are. And then they end up getting you know recognized. So it's a it's a it's a tiny little group managing to get itself recognized. Now, in this case that comes up later, this um, Roy Tarcasio case, he's a humanist atheist who wants to be a notary public in Maryland and is initially, because Maryland requires you to believe in God and have an office of public trust, he won't take that oath. Um, so he's not allowed to become a notary public. Um, he sues. He's eventually vindicated by the Supreme Court. You can't have that kind of religious test that you know the, the state needs to to be to be neutral in these things. Now, in that case, that notary public case, the Tocasso case, there's a footnote that you know basically says um, that secular humanism is a religion. I mean, and it gives the example of the little you know eighty Fobles Church in Oakland and an ethical society um, in Washington D.C. that they're kind of these, and from that you know, kind of sense, hey, the courts recognize that secular humanism as actually a religion, you begin to get this critique on the right, that there is a religion of secularism, and even the court knows there's a religion of secularism, and they're establishing it. So what I was trying to do is just unpack, like, well, what, what are the groups that are actually talking about there? What, when we look at Fopal and his, his, you know, congregation, you know, how, you know, how fearful are they really? Are they really any match for um, the power that's still consistently being wielded by by evangelicals, right? And it just doesn't seem it just doesn't seem that they are. And I give another example: Lester Mondale, who's Walt, Walter Mondale's brother, older brother, half brother, um, is you know the perfect looking you know humanist to fit into your narrative that sec you know like they're these scary sec humanists out there. He signed the Humanist Manifesto. Was a Unitarian minister. He heads an ethical society. He he 
he heads a group called the Fellowship of uh, Religious Humanists for a while. And he's related to Walter Mondale. So, you know, it's like, and so, so there, so Lester Mondale becomes a way of saying, look, Walter Mondale is actually a humanist and he's kind of scary and the humanists are taking over and Jimmy Carter doesn't really have real Christians, you know, he's like letting these kind of humanists in and it all, it all becomes part of the polemic. And, and then, you know, and, and this is part of the polemic, the secular humanists are controlling everything, right? So, you know, and then in 1984, what happens? Walter Mondale is crushed by Ronald Reagan. And usually you're sort of asking yourself, you know, like, these humanists have all this power. The Mondales, Walter and Lester are supposed to, you know, be emblems of this. And yet, you know, Walter Mondale carries only Minnesota, you know. So, um, you know, only his home state. So you, 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 it was really more in that context of let's just, you know, let's think this through. I mean, I, yeah, my, I probably, I write that, you know, from the vantage point of being more sympathetic to the religious humanists. I don't think the secular humanists would particularly like that either, because I, I think it's written more from the perspective of the religious humanists. And there are plenty of secular humanists like Paul Kurtz in the 1980s, who really are more invested in the, the project of purifying secularism of these religious taints and connections. So I don't think those figures would pick like it either. But there is a thread that I'm following through there that does put more of an emphasis on the religious humanists. Um, and, you know, I think if you've been invested for a long time in just how much power secular humanism has, that this is a myth you grew up on, that you learned from Francis Schaeffer, that you've been telling yourself, um, who knows, maybe in youth groups, you've read Tim LaHaye's stuff. I mean, you know, you're pretty invested in this, in the, in the, the myth uh, that there is a religion of secularism, that secular humanism wields this kind of power. And I'm, I'm telling you, you know, a counter story. Um, and I, you know, I tell a number of them. I mean, I think it's, a, you know, remains an important debate. Um, you know, I think, you know, there's certainly other ways of construing, um, you know, secular humanism than looking at these religious humanists. But I think it's worthwhile to think about them in this context, like who these people were and, you know, what a limited minority they were. And get out of this framing of them is like, oh my gosh, there's this dangerous monolith of secular power that's being wielded against conservative Christians. It, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to be the case. And, okay. I, and I think to your point that we're not talking about huge numbers of people. I, out of curiosity, I, I Googled the words ethical culture school because I was curious if there's any, you know, private schools that are dedicated to ethical culture values. There is one in New York City. Tuition runs about sixty thousand dollars a year. So this is not a movement for the masses, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, there are still a handful of ethical culture societies in the United States. I mean, even in its heyday in the late nineteenth century, um, you're talking about four prominent societies. Um, you know, New York, St. Louis. Philadelphia um, and Chicago, 
and they probably had 1,100, 1,200 members. So, and yeah, they picked up some more societies over the course of the 20th century. But no, no, you're right. This is this is just this is not um, this is not a big movement. That that movement and that movement, you know, is typical for a lot of the other ones. I mean, some of them are a lot smaller. I mean. You know, uh, the American romance with Auguste Comte and his religion of humanity and a kind of positive churches in the 19th century. There are a couple of them. Um, there are a few more in England. Uh, they do tend to, you know, do well in more, you know, French, uh, you know, because it's based in Paris. I mean, so there's there's some other places where it does better, but um you know, no, these just aren't big movements. And I, I think it's, you know, worth pausing on that. Um, no, and just thinking about it, I mean, tell a lot of sources just underline this sense of secularism as this minority stance. I mean, if you look at something, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about secular funerals. And it's very hard to stage a secular funeral in the 19th century. Well nigh impossible, in the, you know, in the mid-19th century. And by the end of the 19th century, they they've a number of these, you know, liberal groups or, you know, agnostic groups or little fellowships, moralists or whatever they call themselves, feel pretty good about themselves because they've at least created some funeral rituals and they have some possibility of disentangling their funerals from the dominant Christian template. But it's not easy, right? And it's it's telling that, you know, that when they're thinking about like, is secularism a success? They're not thinking at that point. Hey, have we really managed to take over the public schools? I mean, yeah, there's debates about the public schools. What they're thinking about is like, when I die, am I going to manage to keep my pious relatives from calling in the minister and condemning everything that I, you know, avowed and and uh, you know over the course of my life? That's the kind of thing. That's their measurement, right? And it's a, you know that kind of dust to dust level. Um, there's something much more fragile about the whole enterprise. And I wanted to call attention to that. Um, you know, so yeah, that's a different way of thinking about secularism than the way it functions in anti-secularist discourse on the right. And that discourse on the right is really, you, you know, important and deserves study on its own terms. But um I think there's some other ways we could, you know, imagine this and think about it. And it shifts the attention away from those kind of large discourses, you know, anti-secularist discourses down to a kind of more lived everyday level where, um, you know, secularists, humanists, you know, um, live, negotiate their world. So, yeah, that's. You know, yeah. So no, I know I I I know the critiques. I I um expected them. I you know, um, but you know, it's just a kind of argument that I think is worth having. And you know, worth maybe, you know, on the right, I think thinking a little bit more about like the bugbear they've created, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, but yeah, it's it's got a. I know by the end there's a kind of uh, yeah, it's it. 
the the religious humanists are portrayed sympathetically and Tim LaHaye is not. So, you know, so, I mean, that's true. And I know if you occupied the other political space, um, you know, uh, yeah, you wouldn't like, the, you wouldn't like the epilogue and the epilogue is long and detailed. So, um, yeah. The last thing I want to ask you, um, as sort of a, a coda on our, on this conversation is about, well, I guess it's several books back for you, but when you wrote restless souls talking about liberal religion, personal choice and religion in the 19th century, personalized spirituality, and the word liberal comes up a lot in the Church of St. Thomas Paine as well, this case talking about atheists and agnostics. How much do you see these two liberal clumps, the, the transcendentalists and uh, people who become Baha'i and the people you talk about in Restless Souls at the Free Religious Association and the people you talk about more in this book, um, mostly atheists and agnostics, how do you see that liberal space fitting together? Yeah, and these are these are definitely um, you know they're cousins. In some cases, um, you know they they they're almost overlapping identities. A figure like Moncure Conway, who you know is leading this liberal free thinking congregation in London at the end of his life. He you know he goes through Harvard Divinity School. It would be very hard, um, you know, to to not see him as having a foot in both worlds, right? So they, they are, they're interrelated. I guess the way I, I look at it is that, you, you know, you, you you have this larger problem um, over the course of the 19th century that many people um, are more and more alienated uh, from, from Christianity. There's more of a sense that they occupy a space after Christianity. Mm -hmm. Um, and the question is, what are you going to do with that? Is there going to be some kind of religion after religion um, or um, some kind of, you know, so the, the, the liberal seekers, the, you know, in restless souls, um, all of them, you know, are, 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 you know, in that occupying that space too. And they're, you know, they're looking for like where to go religiously after they've you know basically you know maybe they passed through you know uh, the, they were methodist and then congregationalist and then unitarian and then that wasn't right and now they're out in this space kind of beyond all that and they're trying to figure out what to do and you know and then these agnostic humanists often um display a, a similar trajectory it's just that they've now and the question for them is whether they want to dispense with it entirely. Like they've just like, no, the end point of this is, is that we've learned that we don't need any religion at all. And then there's some of them that say that, oh yeah, actually we still do. We've entered this post-Christian or post-Jewish world, and but we're still looking for something, some kind of religion of humanity, some religion of life some religion of the future however they want to construct it and but yeah those are paired enterprises um i think and there's just a lot of movement you know among them um like okay so an example george cheney is you know 
does the 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 basically could fit your kind of post-Christian model, kind of is a more orthodox minister, ends up a Unitarian, leaves that, becomes a very a well-known free thinker, um, you know, has something he calls an infidel pul pulpit in Boston for a while. And he's giving kind of preaching in the Tom Payne, Thomas Paine building and, and things like that in Boston. So he looks like perfect. But in the by about you know some point in the 1880s he becomes a spiritualist which you will like um and you know go and 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 then from there it's just the search is on again right so this drives the more pure-minded seculars crazy the chain flips and goes over to the spiritualists in their view but there are plenty of these people who are spiritualists at the same time so it's 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 just how these boundary lines get drawn in these circles but it just shows you that they're um you know they're deeply uh you know connected and interrelated so that's why you may see them as kind of you know tandem projects or uh in that way um and uh yeah so i there there there's yeah so they're in that same terrain um they're coming up with some different answers, but they're occupying a similar train and pursuing a, uh, a, a similar problem or question. We've been talking to Lee Eric Schmidt. The book is The Church of St. Thomas Paine, and it is out at least in hardcover. I don't know about paperback from Princeton University. Uh, I think it's out in paper fairly soon. That's what I hear. But uh, thank you thank so you. much. For yeah, the thank you. This was great. Yeah, it was, it was great to talk to you. The RSP is sponsored by the British Association for the Study of Religions, the North American Association for the Study of Religion, and the International Association for the History of Religions. The Religious Studies Project is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, SCIO, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation, charity number SC047750. Brought to you by Editor-in-Chief Andy Alexander and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Israel Dominguez and Savannah Finver, and our Opportunities Digest by Trevor Lynn. Audio editing by Alex Matthews and Nathan Springer. Podcast transcription by Ayesha Javid and Jacob Noblet. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com.co.uk and .ca links, or donating at patreon.com slash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, Instagram, and other portals. Thanks for listening.